When are we gonna talk about us? Wanna talk about it? Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk About It Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse, hosted by me, Patricia McLean, a survivor and founder president of Finding Our Voices which is boldly breaking the silence of domestic abuse across the state, one community at a time, and can be found at findingourvoices.net. Melody and Melissa are joining me today in another show about how you can escape domestic abuse and not only survive, but thrive. Melody is an author and Mi'kmaq native from the Bangor area. When I talked with Melody, she had just received the first copy of her second memoir, Walking the Recovery Road. I first met Melody at the Knox County Jail when I interviewed her for a photo feature column I was doing at the time in the Free Press newspaper, Destigmatizing People in Recovery. Much as I am doing now with Finding Our Voices to Destigmatize Victims of Domestic Violence, Melody was heading to Wyndham Prison to serve a a two-and-a-half-year drug-related sentence. The Free Press also printed an essay that Melody had written about the darkness of substance abuse and how she was determined to change her life. This essay was her first published work. Welcome, Melody. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Look what I got in the mail. Millie, tell me how that's different from your first one. When I first got into recovery, I didn't really know what to do. And I always had these questions, but I was kind of like the shy one. I didn't really want to ask. And I had all these like, so in this book, I just wrote, I wrote down my 12 steps, how I did my steps, what and what like a newcomer, what to expect your first year and how you feel. I experienced four people that passed away, like in 2021, really good friends of mine. Um, So I wrote about it in the book. A couple of them was people that I was in recovery with and um, their energy was so awesome. Like I, I have their photos in this book. One of the girls in there helped me, she helped me. She was in Wyndham with me. She helped me with my step five, where I had to tell somebody, when you tell somebody your your dark, shameful things, and she was there, and I was telling her when we were in Wyndham walking around the track that they have outside, I continued on my path with the recovery path, and Amy went in a different road. She got out of Wyndham six months after I did, and she ended up, um, she drank a lot. She started drinking again a lot. What happened was she, she moved in with the guy that supplied her with the alcohol on a daily basis. Did he know that she was trying to quit? I'm not sure. She got sick in the hospital with pancreatitis and he knew that she wasn't supposed to drink. They had alcohol in the house still, like vodka. So maybe this will be a segue into our conversation, which is really like domestic abuse 
and also the link between substance abuse and domestic abuse. Where is that line? Like, when is it abuse, for instance? A partner is supposed to be helping you to be your best person, right? And supporting that. So, but then with substance abuse, sometimes you enable and is that abuse? It's a little, would you say it's a little complicated? I would say it's very complicated because um, I was actually trapped into like with my ex. I was trying to quit drinking and he said, well, come on and get back together with me and we can raise our son together and you can get sober here. And just maybe a week later, I found out he was doing pills, pain pills, and had all these prescriptions. And he started sharing these with me. And then I, that's how I slowly got started using pills. I got addicted to the pills with him. And it was like a sick cycle together. And I think, I think he tried, I think it was a little bit his control over me that with the medication, because if I didn't have the pills, I would be sick. That was for six years. <laughs> um, what period of your life was that? How long ago did that end? That was in 2007 to 2012. Is that what led you to being incarcerated? Um, no, that led me to rehab. And my son being taken for a little while. And, um, and then after rehab, I tried to remain clean and sober with, um, with, without meetings or without a program or without any help from a sponsor. And I lasted three and a half years, but I ended up, I started to work instead. I worked like two jobs, like back to back. Like I worked a lot to get away from him and I didn't realize how unhappy I was. Wait, I was wait. I don't get it because you were in rehab. You mean you were still with him after rehab? Yeah, I got back together with him because of my son. I thought, well, you know, we have a son. And I honestly, back then, my confidence was so low that I didn't think that I could do anything. <laughs> I, I didn't think I could get my own place. I didn't think I could, I didn't think I could survive without, I, I, I thought I couldn't survive without a man. I felt the same way. But what they do is they put you down so much and control so much that you really feel like you can't make it without them when, when really they're the one who are keeping you down. <sighs> Honest to God, for I just told somebody this the other day. I said, for 13 years, I was in a relationship that I was controlled and I wasn't, I wasn't even able to work until the end of that relationship, the last two years, because I think that last two years was my like cry for like escape. Like, come on, it was enough. 13 years being with him, not being able to work um, and just doing unhealthy things all the time and it was a really unhealthy relationship I didn't realize it until later controlling where where they have that abuse wheel all of it where he didn't want me to work um I wasn't able to go and hang out with anyone I was isolated 
and I was in my early thirties. I, he discouraged me from having friends. He, he'd ask me where I was going. He'd give me like limited amount of money to just go grocery shopping and nothing else. Um, like, like just stuck kind of like it was, it was, it was like that for, for a number of years. Melody, it, when did you leave that relationship? I left that relationship in 2015. Do you think that you would be where I'm looking at you now, healthy, A, B, having written your second book, C, working as a, a counselor and an advocate? Do you think any of those things would be happening if you were still with him? No, no. I think I'd be, I would, I don't know. I think I would be in the same depressed, isolated, like, I'd be trapped in that, like, I'd be trapped and I wouldn't, I would, I have friends today. Like I have people I could call. I can, I'm able to go places. I love my work. You have a life in other words. Yeah, I have a life. <laughs> I have a life. I'm, I am so happy that I'm not with him. And I, and I honestly, I used to be like, okay, just think of this. When I was incarcerated for 15 months, right? And those 15 months, I was happier in those 15 months than I was in 13 years with him. What does that tell you about freedom, right? The idea of freedom. Like you think that you're on the outside and you're free, but were you free when you were with him? No, I wasn't free at all. I wasn't even able to visit my my relatives in Canada because I didn't have a car and he'd say, well, you can't take my car. And I wasn't working, so I never had money to go. There was one day that my mom came to visit. It was 11 o'clock. Well, they came, they came to visit me, my mom and my stepdad and my sisters. And, but they, they were surprising me. Okay. And, um, I, they, I heard a knock and I was, I went to the door was my mom and, um, you know, in like Native Americans will help each other. Like in our community, if somebody comes to knock on the door, like, and if it's your relative, it's really the right thing to do is invite them in and feed them and say, how, how we're, you've traveled a long way. Like, let's get you some comfortable, like, let's get you comfortable and like sleep here and we had an extra room they could have stayed and I had to tell my I had to tell my mom sorry you can't stay because he doesn't he doesn't want you here that he you could come back tomorrow and that still haunts me today she the saddest look on her face and I'm pretty sure she cried like she was upset but today when my mom comes she has her own room here <laughs> she I invite her all the time and I've given her gas money to get here I give her gas money to drive home like she doesn't ever have to worry like that again like I told her mom I'm very sorry that happened back then but and she's even so happy that I left him in that 2012 well that was the little bit of stop like where he got physical when he strangled me that time and then after I was I was still so like 
not in my right frame of mind that I was like, and I was still like, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I gave him another chance and I went back with him and I said, I added stipulations with, which was like no drinking and no drugs, but still that uncomfortable life was still there of like, if you drop milk, like if our son dropped milk or um, if my son was playing loud in the morning, he'd yell like he'd yell he'd yell like top of his lungs like he would be loud and like I, I remember my daughter and I talk about this about the dinners that we used to have when we used to go out as a family and have dinner somewhere and we were all so worried about spilling a glass of water like that's the whole time that we were eating we were just hyper focused on you know fear of of spilling something and he spilled something once, you know, it's ridiculous, but it's just like, you, you you could relate to that, right? The idea that something would spill. These kids were like three, four, whatever. They were little. And I was with my, I remember I was visited my grandkids one time and I think it was Maya. I think we were at Thanksgiving dinner or something. Little Maya, maybe she was three or something. Like she spilled her glass like four times at the table, you know, with the juice. This is recently when I, you know, escaped and we were just, everyone was laughing about it. You know, we were laughing. Okay, it's spilled. Okay, clean it up. It's spilled again. You know, but that's, that's not, that wasn't the case when you were in, I was in that relationship. It was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable, wasn't it? Like it was, it, it was, it was, it wasn't like if there was no groceries, he'd get mad. Like, oh, he, you know, that like that. He wasn't always physical. I can 100% say there was, he was more, um, he was really controlling and really um, mentally abusive. Like, when was the first, how long were you been together before he was first physically abusive to you? Um, not even a year. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and yeah. so but, but the interesting thing, would you agree with this that, they don't have to be physically abusive all the time. They just need to do it at once sometimes, or if they do it once, you know, they can do it. And so therefore it's intimidation because you always know they can do it. Do you agree with that too? Yeah. It's, it's that uncomfortable feeling of like, when is he going to get mad? Is something going to set him off? Like, and, or accusing you of something, doing something that you really didn't do or who's on the phone like why do you have a phone i didn't have a phone where i could go on it because he would say like you don't need a phone i'm sure that if you had tried to advocate for yourself and sort of insist that you need a phone that would just be opening the door to oh you know who do you need to be talking to you know like opening the door to accusing you of you know needing to talk to a boyfriend or having friends on the side or this or that yeah. And, um, I didn't even realize that we had a, he was older than me. He was, uh, he was, he was 27 years older and I was, I was only like, I was 26 when I met him. So, but now that I think about it, think back, I'm like 26 and he was 49 and I was like, wow, why? And he told me two stories of his ex-wives one one of them where his first ex-wife left him he he told me the story it should have been a red flag he said that um he went and vandalized her car because she 
filed for divorce and he vandalized her car in the middle of the night. And, and now that I think back, I'm like, wow, why didn't I, why didn't I even see that? A lot of times they, they tell you things, they tell you, and, and we're just blind and de deaf and dumb. Like for me, I'd say that about myself. Like, don't you think that a lot of times these guys actually tell you who they are, but we just love is blind or whatever. We just don't, don't see it or don't want to see it or. No. And then like, honestly, I think, I don't know what was wrong. I, I, I don't know what happened. Uh, the second time he said that his other ex-wife, when they got divorced, he kept the, uh, um, he was getting a settlement for like 90,000 but he told her something different. He told her that it was, it was only, oh, it's only 7,000 that I'm getting, but you can have everything in the house and the car and whatever you want for custody if you sign these papers. And she did sign them. And then after he kind of was laughing to me, like he said, and then she signed it and I got 90,000. And I was like, then I should have, I should have, I should have known like he told me these stories like in that year, that first year, but I was too, I don't know. I was just, I was young and um, I was drinking a little bit, you know, I was drinking twice, twice a week, but I had not done drugs. Um, and, but and, you said, and you even said that you felt probably lucky that he chose you because you didn't have much self-esteem at the time. Yeah, pretty much. I was like, oh, yeah, he's been in the Air Force, honor honorable discharge, no criminal. He didn't have a criminal record, top secret clearance from the Air Force, like working on nuclear weapons. Like he showed me the paperwork. That's actually like, scary. So tell me where you were born. So I was born in Sydney, which is like 40 minutes outside of a Native American. Well, it's a reservation. Um, called Eskasoni. It's the largest Micmac reservation in the world. <laughs> it's really beautiful. It's like, I don't know if you've been like Bordeaux Lakes. It's in Cape Breton Island. It's really, really beautiful. But it was, it was a, it was hard to grow up there. There was a lot of um, poverty. Um, my mom didn't work. She was young when she had us. She was only 17, 18, and 19 when she had the three of us, the, my sister, me, and my younger brother. When we were growing up, she would have parties at the house. And, you know, we'd on the weekends, there'd be people partying, and we'd wake up, me and my sister, and there was people drinking. They were mean. <laughs> there, was, there was verbal abuse. They would be mean to us. I left when I was 17. I left my home life, honestly, because... Um, I was babysitting my mom's kids on a daily basis for like five years. So that was a regular thing since till I was like 12 until 17, I babysat my mom's three kids and they had the kids back three young girls, like back one year apart. <laughs> so, but, and then they would go out, my stepdad and her would go out and I was home watching the kids and I would have to clean the house and I would have to do the laundry. And if any of it wasn't done, they, they, they'd be upset. Like she would be upset. Like, why didn't you, why wasn't the laundry done? Instead of saying like, thank you for watching the kids and how, you know, she just said, 
if there was anything like the floor wasn't mopped she'd say well the floor wasn't done that was about four days a week that happened when's the first relationship you had that you feel was unhealthy or controlling when i was a minor 17 years old i met somebody on the blueberry barons and they were 37 and married and um he didn't tell me he was married till after like six months later and there was he was just he it was it wasn't it wasn't good he was always um he said mean things to me a lot but i stayed because he because he had a place for me to stay was he native no he wasn't native did he call you slurs about being native? Yeah, he did. <laughs> and his his friends did too. It was sad back then for me. Like I wish I would have had like a little bit more um guidance, but I just didn't I didn't surround myself with people that would and if they did try to help me, I, I wouldn't be able to see it because I was just so um infatuated with the relationship of like oh yeah he's got a house and he he's he drives me everywhere and I don't have to worry about this I just have to clean that like I have to just keep the house clean and um do things <laughs> it was it wasn't fun he wanted me to I was young back then and he he took me to like a strip club and I had a really, I was fit back then. I had a, like, he went in and he's like, you should do this. This is what you should do. Like, and I was like, I was barely 18 and he took me to like where they used to have the divas there. And he, he was like, w went in with me and he's like, you should, you know, do this. And like, they're having this thing and, um, and I was like uncomfortable. I left and I was angry and it was in Bangor and I didn't know where to go. And I was like, um, I was, it was, I didn't know what to do. All these sick things that he was doing with me. I finally left cause I had enough and I hitchhiked to Bangor and I, I went and stayed at the shelter. How many years into it was this? This was like a year year into it so in one year it got so bad that you actually went, lived in a shelter rather than live with him yeah I was like I'm gonna go I'm not gonna do this anymore it was even in the winter time I left because uh I was just so I, I had enough I was like what am I even doing here you are listening to let's talk about it Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse. With me, Patricia McLean, founder, president of Finding Our Voices at findingourvoices.net, and my guest, Melody, an author of two books chronicling her journey from substance abuse, domestic abuse, and incarceration to published author. Back to our conversation. After I left him, I started drinking a little bit um, just so I would forget about I, I, I it was like a way to, for me to like kind of numb out. And it was um, 
so I wouldn't, so I would forget my reality. <laughs> I had so much trauma, like, growing up, and then, like, the, the, with him, and, like, what I had experienced already, like, I was, alcohol kind of made it so I wouldn't, I wouldn't think, like, it made me forget a little bit, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sad over things. So you were drinking and then tell me about that and bring me up to wh where you met this other guy who was the guy we were talking about earlier. So I was living at that sober house, um, the home base program in 2003. And I wasn't even, I was hard. I wasn't really serious about recovery. I, I, Somebody told me that it's a good place in Bangor, you know, the rent's cheap, like stay there and they'll, they'll, they'll help you there. And I didn't know what they meant by help, but I guess I was drinking like every two, twice a week. So I met him in a bar. I met him in a bar. Um, I met him at a bar at, uh, in Brewer and he was drinking a few drinks and I was drinking. So we got talking and I, he was like, you know, he, he told me, Oh, my mom's native too. Like, you know, I'm native. And I'm like, Oh really? <laughs> you know, and we get started to talk. And was that, was that true by the way? Yeah. His mom is native. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, well, you can, cr I said, I live at a sober house and I'm going to have to figure out what to do. Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't even know if I should go back. So he's like, well, you can crash at my place. Like, I don't mind. Um, I only live down the street and I won't bother you. He said, so I was like, all right. So it was friendly at first. Our relationship for a month was like friends. I like offered, I, his apartment was a mess. So I like, I, I said, well, I'll clean your apartment if you just, buy me like a six pack. I'll clean out your, I'll clean your fridge. I'll do your laundry, organize your paperwork, whatever you need me to do. And so, um, yeah, we were friends first. And, um, then when I moved in with them, like three months later, um, three months later and I was drinking a lot. We were drinking a lot. He was doing pills back then and I didn't really do any pills. I didn't care. He he'd be he'd be taking like every time he had every type of pill. Like he had the he had pain pills, he had um muscle relaxers, he had Adderall, he had like um other things like you mean Oxycontin? Yeah, he eventually he did oxycodone. Then oxycontin. And did you were you worried when you saw all those pills, or did you how were you, what were you thinking when you first started to notice the, how many pills he was taking? He um. When he got real bad was when in two thousand, like when our son was one, and he had taken me back after he we got into a fight, and he he kicked me out for drinking or I ran off or something. Then we separated. I went back to the sober house for six months. And then that's when he said, come back. We can try to be a family again. And like, 
you can have Anthony and we don't have to do, you don't have to worry about child support. You don't have to worry about, I won't take him from you and they won't give you custody because you're, you don't have an apartment. You don't have anything. You don't even work in. Like, they won't give you custody anyways. But if you come back with me, like, we can do this together. And I, so I was like, okay, I caved and I missed my son. So I went back. And then when I went back, um, a few days after I went back, he, I caught him snorting, like, snorting pain pills in the kitchen. And I peeked over and I said, what are you doing? <laughs> And he just had like the, it's, I said, isn't that like chalk? <laughs> I, I was like disgusted. I was like, that's really bad. I shook my head and I said, that's not good. You're not, pills aren't, you're not supposed to take pills in your nose. They're supposed to <laughs> swallow it. And he didn't care. He's like, well, it feels better. I'm like, well, that's gross. I said, so he said, well, do you, do you want a pain pill? And I'm like, no, not really. I don't, I don't want your pills. I don't want any, I don't want anything like that. But then he kept doing it for like a couple of weeks. And then finally I had a bad day and I, I was like, yeah, I'll take one then. Let me, I'll have a Valium. He gave me a Valium. He gave me a pain pill. And then the both of them combined together. I was like, wow, I was, I like the feeling. I was like, it was instantly, I was like, wow, I like this feeling. So I started taking them like that for like six months. And then finally I was like, well, let me, I'm going to try it too. Then let me try how you're doing it. So that's when that, I call it the pill shuffle years. He had the prescriptions. He had, he had everything you could think of oxycodone. They gave him the max amount. They, he had Soma, he had Valium, he had Ritalin, he had, uh, Ambien, like he was a, it was a prescription, like anything you can think of. So I was like, he would share me his meds, but then he said, well, why don't you get yours? Why don't you get your own? And then we could just share them. So when I run out, I'll, you can help me. Like we did that for six years. And then, um, when we ran out, we would, um, when we ran out was, it was bad that's when he was extra like mean, he just horrible. In that 2012 where he got physical, even today I, I think back at it, like how I forced myself, like I would do anything to just make him to have a good day. Like he would want sexual stuff and I wasn't even interested or anything, but I gave in just to make him happy. That went on for a lot of years and I was, I had sex with my husband all the time when I didn't want to do it. I don't want sex with him at all, but I was having all the time, you know, just to placate, right? Because you want to keep the peace and, you know, and he'll be in a better mood and, you know, you, you can't say no and all that stuff. It's ridiculous. To me, that whole relationship, that was the worst part for me because it was a daily basis. Um, and it was, I would be, I hardly wake up in the morning and I just like, he'd already be starting in and I'm like, if I went up, if I got up and like, I got to have a coffee first, if I, he'd get up with an attitude. So I just started giving in. That's what happened with me too. I would be, I would be afraid to move in bed because then he'd wake up and, and want to have sex with me. Yeah, me too. And I hated it. I was just like, wow, please. Like, 
and I didn't even I didn't even enjoy it. I was just like, and I did things so he wouldn't want me. I wouldn't take a shower sometimes. I remember doing that one time, Melody. I remember that. I just stopped <laughs> taking a shower because I was hoping that that would make him so he didn't want to have sex with me, but it didn't work. That's abuse when they're basically forcing themselves on you all the time. Isn't that a relief though? Like th think about all the wonderful things about our lives right now that, you know, that we don't have to have sex with someone that we don't want to have sex with. Yeah, <laughs> especially. Um, honestly, thank God for that every day. I'm like, thank you. I sometimes like I'll get in my head when I'm in the morning when I'm walking and I'm like, I'll thank my higher power and I'll say, thank you for giving me another day clean and sober and, and safe. Like, thank you that I'm able to like wake up without having, and I can go like meditate and and pray and do my walk and do my own thing, get my own coffee and I can make my own breakfast without having to make him breakfast. Or if I didn't make his meal or if I didn't get groceries or if the laundry wasn't done or the bed not made, like stuff like that. Like, I don't have to worry about that. I'll do my, I do the things I want to do now. The meals like supper time. Oh, supper's not done. Like, yeah, like four, four thirty. Supper had to be made for like over ten years. Like I had to make dinner. Like, why didn't we ever, you and me? Why didn't we ever say make your own dinner? You know? Yeah, I know. Like, like I never did that. You know, I sometimes I didn't feel like cooking. I don't want to cook every single night, dinner every night. Was it one time that you went to um, Knox County and one time that you went to Wyndham? Yeah, it was just that one time and one time. Okay, so if you wanted to lead up to that, tell me how, how you ended up there, how we met, and then sort of about the, yeah. Okay, I'll quickly say it just because, um, so how I became incarcerated was I ended up leaving that person and and I didn't realize, and he took my son too with him when he left, so um, I got into, I went into downward spiral of like relapse, drinking, drug, experimenting with new drugs. And I tried like heroin for the first time. I did everything. I was so, I was really like sad. I couldn't see my son. And, you well, know, how, I was, how, how old was your son? Anthony, he was 13 at the time. Well, 12. He was 12 and 13. Wow. And, and how old were you? I was um 36 or 34. Would you say that was your low point at that point when when you was that your low point? Yeah, that was my real low point. It was bad. I didn't I never ever thought I would ever try a needle in my life ever. But I started I somebody introduced me to heroin and I liked the the feeling. I was like no wonder people get addicted. So I tried that for the first time when I was 35 or 36. It was in 2015. And I did that for nine months straight. I was in such a bad frame of mind that I needed to get arrested, I think. I needed to go to, I needed to, go to jail. I needed to be put away because I was a danger to myself and others. I'm very glad that they arrested me. And I'm glad I went away. And I was sentenced to 15 months. And that's when I first met you, when I seen an article. I was doing a series on um, people in our area who um, had substance addicted to drugs. 
And uh, it was uh, feature articles with a, a photo and their story to destigmatize uh, substance abuse. Is that the one that you're talking about? Yeah. And then yeah. I was, I want to reach out to this lady. And so I did. So Mike reached out to you and I said, I got a story for her. And then you, you, I, we both, Mike couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe it. He was in shock for like a day. And I was, he's like, I can't believe she's going to come in here. And then the, the warden there, Cynthia Gardner, she was, she came to talk to me and she said, so I hear that Patricia's going to come in here and interview you. That's awesome. And she was so excited. And I was like, um, I was, I went with the flow. I was like, yep, I can, I'll be careful what I say, <laughs> you know? And when we did that interview, I was, and then, you know, I feel like you inspired me to like make some changes. Like, honestly, I always had this thing for like writing and I didn't know where it could go. And like, I think the combination of Mike and you, like both of you, something clicked in that room that day where I was like, I want to change. I don't want to do what I've been doing. And I started writing. You said in the story that you wanted to write your story. You told me that. Yeah. And then when I reread it, I said, oh, okay. She wrote that I'm writing a book. Now I really have to write a book. So I was like, okay, so I'm not going to let her down. I'm not going to, now I got to keep I'm going to make this article come true and I'm going to make a book now. I said, I'm going to write a book now because this article said I was going to. So after I met you, I went, I actually had that article, like was posted near my like pictures and stuff. And, and I was proud of it. I was like, oh, look at this, you know, and I would show people. Sometimes I would show like, hey, check this out. So I there was a girl. There was a young lady at the Two Bridges center she was incarcerated and she said i'm gonna get you a notebook so you can start writing your book i want to see you write and i said okay and then i got transported to Wyndham. there's volunteers that go in there to do aa meetings they have bible study they have like uh, self-help groups they have like so many different classes available there that I took every one just to stay busy. Like I, any class I was like, yes, I, like sign me up. So I feel like I was learning, but I was also healing myself because I was so isolated. I got to know, I don't know. I, I got to know myself again a little bit slowly. It was like thawing out from a, from a, I say like a freeze. And then Wyndham had, um, they had a computer room. So it took me about four months of rough draft. Three months I started writing about my story and how it started and like got into some detailed stuff. And, um, and then I, it took me, it took me about seven or eight months to type and finish it when I got out. I went the self-publishing route. Where do you get the money to do that? I made payments. Yeah, I first did the good. I started working when I got out and got the apartment. But then I had like, I was like, I'm going to make sure I have it. The first was like 500 down payment. And then every month was like 300 then. So I was like, okay, I got to have my rent and then I'll have that payment. And then I made the payments for like 11 months. And how then much, it was how much did it cost, Melody, if I can ask? It was 3700 
Wow. A lot of people would think that was too high a barrier. Tell me about your job, though. How did you get the job? Recovery support. So I'm doing the recovery support outreach. I go into um, if there's uh, somebody that needs, if somebody reaches out to us and um, they call us, sometimes I get a phone call, so I have to call them back and talk to them. And if they want to go to rehab or make that step, I just talk to them from like my own experience a little bit and pull them in if, if they're interested. And then we set it up so we help them to get to either detox and then rehab and then a sober home. And then we support them after with counseling and anything that they might need. And, and how do you feel about your job? I really like it. <laughs> Two days ago, I was feeling very low and this young lady called me from a rehab that I helped her get into and she thanked me because it was her 30 days. And she was like, I just want to say thank you for that pep talk. You gave me that five, 10 minute talk that you gave me just before you, you, you know, just before I signed the papers to be admitted and it, it's helped me so much. It's still in my head. And I was just like, yes, thank you. And I thanked her. I was like, Oh my God, I'm so proud of you. Like check in with me once a month. When you were incarcerated, the woman that you would talk to when you were there, were there women in the, in the prison with you who would talk about, you know, abusive controlling relationships? Yeah, there was a, a lot of them were in relationships and they like um, that were unhealthy, that were abusive mentally and physically. Um, they would we would share our stories. Some of us would. That's that's why I think I healed a part of my my I call it my core because it's my inside, like having the talks with the ladies in there like they they went through what I went through and it we were just we our trauma led us to drinking or drugs or doing things that we we weren't we wouldn't normally do. But we had this on like for me, I think it was like unresolved like uh, trauma that I wasn't dealing with and I was trying to escape for a long time and not deal with it so I wasn't well and then when I got into recovery is when I really started to take a look at my inside and say like why am I continuing to have this cycle of hurting myself like why am I gonna keep when I get out of here am I gonna do this again I don't want to be I don't want to ever come back here. I want to go out. I want to try to make a new life and I want to try to do it myself. And I want to like, I want to help people. I want to try to help my community. And I actually, I was having, when I was in Knox County and I was having um, bad withdrawal, I really prayed about it. And I said, please to my higher power. I said, can you please guide me? And like, if I could just have one more chance, I will, when I get out, I want to try to, I will like, I will change my life and help people until I, till I, till I can't anymore. Like I want to be like a, um, recovery warrior, <laughs> like somebody that goes out and like tries to help people. And that's, that's what I'm able to do now at my job. Like, I feel like today I, I took somebody I went to Wyndham today and I picked somebody up and I took them to 
to their new home. So it's just like so rewarding, um, the work that I'm doing today and like you doing facilitating meetings, like it's it's a change of a it's change of it, my life is totally different than it was ten years ago. Like complete I wouldn't even believe me if I went back in time and I said this is what's gonna happen. I wouldn't even believe it. Like I never thought I could ever like um I never knew I could have my own, like I could have um, my own house, like land, like a mortgage. Like, you know, I, I didn't know I could do that. And then like my bank, like I could go in there and like, I could get a loan, like a good loan and like pay it back and then get another loan. Like my credit's good. Like I've been able to like, I feel like I can. I don't have to depend. I don't, I actually, I don't want to depend on anybody ever again. I don't ever want to be stuck with anybody where they say, can you, you can stay with me and you can live with, no, I will pass on that. If you're listening to this and you're, you have any little similarities to the story and you're unsure, you know, if you're in a relationship where the situation's kind of the same, you know, and you're not feeling like you can do it, you can do it. You know, you can change your life path. Even if you're deep in substance use, there is a way out. There's people that will support you in the domestic violence. And there's also recovery support. So if you're listening and you're having trouble in those two sections and you're unsure, just don't be afraid of it and just make the change. <laughs> Thank you, Melody. Join Melody at the launch party for her second memoir. Walking the Recovery Road. It's on Sunday, December 17th, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. at The Barn, the Bangor Area Recovery Network that is actually in Brewer at 142 Center Street. Please get in touch with me, Patricia McLean, at hello at findingourvoices.net if you would like me to connect you with Melody via email. And Melody has donated 10 copies of her new book to Finding Our Voices. Thank you, Melody. The first 10 people to contact me at hello at findingourvoices.net to ask for one of these books will receive one for free. And now to mark the holidays. We are going to hear a message from another woman to whom inspiring is not a strong enough word to express how much she has transcended and how much light she is now spreading to others who are still in the dark. Four years ago, Melissa's husband of six years, while out on bail, broke into the West Bath home he shared with Melissa and their three-year-old child, threatened her with a knife, and then over 16 to 18 hours, beat, tortured, and raped her repeatedly, also strangled her until she was unconscious. He was not charged with attempted murder. He was sentenced to 15 to 25 years. Let's see how much time he actually serves. Welcome, Melissa. Christmas was like, it was like this, the sword that was kind of swinging and hanging up and that was just when it came down and it was just the start. It was like the blade that cut through it. And then from that, from Christmas till springtime, it was, it was just hell. Um, and we try, we try to rationalize it and, uh, you know, we've all tried to figure it out, but 
that's the time of the year where he would be home the most. He had the least amount of money because the business didn't have as many jobs because it was construction. So he would drink more. His drug use would usually, he'd usually relapse and start using again. And so it was definitely the hardest time. It was the start of the hardest time for us. Do you look around and think about the other women right now who are in those kind of situations with Christmas coming? Yes, I do. And I think about their children a lot. And I, I think about my children and I think about the things that the things that I had to do to assure that they still got that magic around this time of year. It, I, and I know that there are women out there who are having to go through that and having to stress about that and having to put on a smile when they know they're going to go home and have to argue about whether or not they can spend money on Christmas presents. And it's, yeah. In fact, I just thought about grocery shopping last night. This is just a tip of the iceberg and you know, an essay is you can only put so much in there. And I feel like um, there's just so much more that I wasn't able to put in that I really hope, you know, people understand um, outside of what they're reading that the, the true difficulty that some survivors uh, have to go through without complaining, they're always blaming themselves for everything. So they're taking all the pressure. It's, it's just a lot. And so I hope it as little bit um, of a glimpse as it is, I hope it just helps help somebody out there. My first Christmas married with my ex-husband, I was excited. We had a baby and all our kids were joining us. I somehow managed to get all the shopping done. That was my job. We were doing well financially and we spent quite a bit of money on the kids. So I was feeling proud wrapping the 50 plus presents. Again, all alone because that too was my job. He sat on the couch as he usually did after work sipping his drink and laughing at a TV show. I made the mistake of asking why he couldn't get into the spirit of Christmas and help me wrap the presents. Suddenly, everything I was doing was pathetic and wrong. It wasn't long before I was the words, starting with the letters A, B, and C. I was shocked. Why was he so angry? I started crying and he grabbed me by the throat and threw me all over the room, strangling me until I almost passed out and spitting on me. Eventually, he turned to the tree. Oh, the Christmas tree. So beautifully decorated with tons of gifts wrapped neatly underneath. It seems like he had super strength. He threw the tree across the room and kicked every present until they were all scattered and torn apart. I was left crying in a room that looked like a tornado had touched down. It was midnight on Christmas Eve. The kids were coming soon and the baby would be awoken. Did he really just destroy our children's Christmas? Of course, I wouldn't let that happen. So I stayed up all night, rewrapping each gift, redecorating the tree, tidying up the room. While he slept, I cleaned up his mess, something I did very often the next three years of our life together. The holidays played out the same way every year to the point where I stopped wrapping the gifts and waiting until almost daybreak before bringing them out. The holidays were like the rest of our lives together, finding ways to get through without triggering any one of his hundred switches. My children never knew, coming home or waking up, that I had rewrapped their gifts three times or that the Christmas tree was upside down just hours before. And when their faces lit up Christmas morning, nothing in the world could steal the joy I felt. The holidays can be very difficult for survivors. They have millions of different triggers to avoid, all while putting on a happy mask to the friends and family they don't get to see. 
I look back at my life and at violence, and it is clear to me now that my abuser had one goal, destroying anything and everything that brought me happiness and joy. Merry Christmas to all the strong survivors doing what they have to in order to make the holidays perfect for their children. Thank you, Melissa. If what we have talked about today sounds familiar, if you or someone you know is afraid due to a family member, say something to someone. You can access the sisterhood of survivors that is Finding Our Voices at findingourvoices.net. And you can reach me directly at hello at findingourvoices.net. If you are in Maine, there is a domestic abuse agency near you with advocates who also understand and are there to help. The 24-7 Confidential 800 hotline number for the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence is 1-866-834-HELP. The National Domestic Violence Hotline number is 1-800-799-7233. Thank you to my terrific sound engineer, Tammy Oropesa, and to my terrific daughter, Jackie McLean Strack, for the music on this show. See you next year on WERU-FM on Let's Talk About It, second Friday of every month, 4 p.m. Wishing you a happy and safe holiday. And remember, always, but especially during the holidays, love should feel good. Am I not pretty enough? Is my heart too broken? I'm enough for me.
how long ago it was, dear I can still remember how you felt I'm still getting over that you're not here And if you were, you'd be someone else I took it for granted when you were here with me I didn't think you'd ever let me go I don't know if you remember what we used to be But I've got something that I need to know When are we gonna talk about us? When are we gonna come together and clean up what we left? Do you wanna talk about us? Or would you rather forget? I still wanna talk about us Cause the ghost of us is haunting me It never lets me rest Tell me how it felt when we were both here And how it felt to leave it all